Well, welcome, folks. My name is Matt Hickey. Every now and then I get to uh, come join you. I'm waiting on a podium. I'm not sure if I'm going to get a hand with that or not, but I'll sort of toss that out there. And while I'm waiting on a podium, I'm going to ask the ushers to come on down. I get to usher occasionally, and when we often get a giggle when somebody forgets to do that, and I told Brent I had a terrible fear I was going to do that myself tonight, so thank you very much. I'm glad we got that taken care of. So we're in a series on parables or stories as ways to illustrate great truths. And Brent is using an imaginative figure or an illustration about watchful dragons as guards that might defend us from seeking truth or seeking righteousness, as he just alluded to. Nearly a hundred years ago, a 16-year-old boy stood alone at a train station in England. He would turn 17 in a few months. He was on his way to begin studies at Oxford University. He didn't know it at the time, but he brought with him that day, alone at the train station, a series of his own watchful dragons. Youthful pride, always a dangerous one. Hard-going atheism and rationalism and cynicism that had been drilled into him by a tutor that he'd spent the last several years with that as an adult he would refer to as the great knock because the knock had knocked into his thick skull certain attributes about how to think. Now he had some time to kill before the train came by. So he decided to wander into a bookstore nearby. He caught sight of a book that was written in 1858 by a Scottish pastor named George MacDonald called Fantasies, Fantasies in modern English. Jack was a guy who enjoyed exercises, flights of fancy, or exercising the imagination, so he stopped for a moment, he picked up the book, he lingered over it, and he decided, I'm going to drop a few pennies in the the till here and walk out with this book. I've got some time to kill. I've always enjoyed reading. Years later, reflecting on that life-changing moment, he made the following observation. I did not yet know, and I was long in learning, that, excuse me, the name of the new quality, the bright shadow that rested on the travels of Enodos. Enodos is the title character in this book the main figure of the protagonist, a 21-year-old man who Jack could relate to, who's starting a journey in life like Jack was. The story MacDonald tells is an allegory set in in an imaginative land. Enodos, actually in the Greek, means pathless, without a path. You could also translate it as lost, which relates to the parables from Luke 15 that we're going to talk about. So Jack said, I did not yet know and was long in learning the name of the new quality, that bright shadow that rested on the travels of Enodos. I do now. It was holiness. That night my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me, not unnaturally, took longer. In the same book that he shared that story, his autobiography written a number of years later, he goes on to say that... Thirteen years later, he found himself, now a student at Oxford University after having served in World War I, been injured in the Battle of the Somme and survived that war. 
But you must picture me alone in that room at Maudlin College at Oxford University, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I had greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929, 13 years later, after his imagination had been baptized. I gave in. I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. This comes from a book called Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis's autobiography. Brent spent some time last fall reintroducing us to the delights that are C.S. Lewis. He was rescued as a lost 16-year-old a number of years later from his atheism by an introduction to the living God. He was gifted by the living God, I would submit, with a talent, a supreme talent as a storyteller. Many of us grew up either ourselves or with our kids on the Chronicles of Narnia. Wonderful pictures that tell the gospel story in a different way, that exercise our imagination. One of his best friends and a fellow academic, J.R.R. Tolkien, was another gifted storyteller, as was McDonald. I can still remember reading The Princess and Curdie, The Princess and the Goblin, with my daughter. And she loved every minute of it. We could barely put it down at night. These come from the same pen of George MacDonald. That gift of exercising the imagination, that not, not all of us have it to the level of a Tolkien or a Lewis, but all of us have an imagination that can be touched by a gifted author like that. And that's a reflection, in a way, of something that's passed off to us from the ultimate storyteller, the one whose very words spoke existence into being, spoke us into being. God's the ultimate storyteller. God himself uses parables as teachable moments from the words we get from Jesus, but also from some Old Testament examples. And I want to share one. It's a rather dramatic example of the use of parable, in this case, to convict somebody. So from 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12 falls hard on the heels of David's follies. David now stands before us as an adulterer and a murderer. David, who had spent years, after having been anointed, dodging spears, hiding out in caves, taking bread on the Sabbath, surviving. He's now been exalted. He's been lifted up. He finds himself on the roof of his palace one day, and his eyes, his heart, his mind, and his spirit all wander. And the rest is history. And there's the tryst with Bathsheba, who conspires to have Uriah killed. Second Samuel 12 starts with these words. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Right? We probably need not read any further to know that trouble's coming. Okay? David is about ready to get a rebuke from the living God. You know the story. Nathan delivers words that were given to him by God to David. And what does he do? He tells a parable. When Brent started the series a couple of weeks ago, he reminded you of the etymology of parable. Two Greek words, para alongside, and bolar, which is the verb to throw or to toss. 
when we tell parables, we toss one thing alongside of another to illustrate. In this case, a story is tossed alongside David to remind him of some truths that he had wandered away from. He had himself become lost. Nathan tells a story about a poor shepherd who had one lamb who had been so dear to that family, it was as if it was another family member, and a rich man came into town and decided, despite the fact that he owned hundreds of lambs, he had to have that one for the meal this evening. This story unfolds. David creeps to the edge of his seat because he's caught up in the imaginative tale that Nathan is telling. In 2 Samuel 12, depicts this picture of David. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man in this parable. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, that man hath done this thing, shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And here's the moment of drama. Nathan stood up, pointed a finger at David, and said, You are the man. He used an imaginative exercise, a parable, to convict David. Had he trotted in with the district attorney in a summons and legal proceedings, any of a number of things might have happened. David might have said, oh, no, where's the evidence? He might even have said, I'm the king. Stop. Off with your head, Nathan. Nathan, inspired by God, was clever enough to tell a story that David rightly responded to with conviction. 2 Samuel 12 goes on, of course, to illustrate why David, despite being a great sinner, is also one who was referred to as the apple of God's eye because he immediately got on his knees and said, I am guilty. I was wrong. In Psalm 51, we read the cry of his heart, that song of repentance. And he says powerfully in Psalm 51, Create in me, O God, a clean heart. And he uses an important Hebrew word there. Create is the Hebrew word bara, which we get from Genesis 1. It means create out of nothing. David didn't say, Take my rock-hard sinful heart and do what you can with it. But give me a brand new one. That's a spirit of conviction. And it hangs upon a tail, an exercise of the imagination. There are great advantages to the uses of figurative or imaginative language, in this case to serve as as a means of conviction. But I would suggest that as we approach the parables, both through this series and as we have have the opportunity to encounter these in our own study, that, that we play to some extent that role of David and see the parables as something that's cast alongside us. Not as something that happened 2,000 years ago, but as teachable moments from which we can learn things. And maybe we can become the ones who have our imaginations baptized. Let me give you a personal example of this. Over the Christmas holiday, I sought out a book that I've been interested in reading for a number of years. I just hadn't gotten around to getting to it. I've read a number of books by this author. His name is Andrew Roberts. He's a British historian. A couple of years ago, he published a one-volume history of World War II called The Storm of War. It's a fascinating book about a terrible period of time in human history. 
in fact, in sharing with my wife, who's sitting out here tonight, my, my interest in this book, she quite naturally kind of rolled her eyes. Why? <laughs> Why are you interested in that? Because it's awful. Awful. Period of human history. I worked my way through that over the holidays. On Christmas Day, my daughter woke up to find, among a host of other things, something she had requested, a book called The Book Thief. The Book Thief is a work of fiction, also set in Nazi Germany during World War II. So I worked my way through Robert's expansive history of the European theater, of the Russian theater, of the island hopping campaign, as progress was made towards Japan. In about 48 hours, my daughter buzzed through the book Thief and loved every minute of it. And she handed it to me and said, you've got to read this, Dad. And I said, okay, as soon as I'm done listening. And Robert's book is seven or 800 pages, so it took me a while to get through it. But then I picked up the book Thief. And it's a magnificent story. A work of fiction. A work of the imagination. When I got done with it and I put it down, which of those two do you suppose moved me more? By far, the book thief. I wept as if I was a wet rag being wrung out in the hands of the Lord Almighty. Not a word of it was true in the sense that it actually happened. But every page of it was true in the sense that it holds up a mirror to help inform what does it mean to be a human being. I'm not knocking Robert's book. Fantastic book. But when we can exercise the imagination, like you see in the book thief, when you begin to see not just statistics, because frankly, when you read the statistics from World War II, they're, they're overwhelming. There are aspects of the mind, I think, that we protect ourselves. But we can read six million Jews. There's one in the book thief who dwells in the basement of a beautiful couple trying to save him. One. And it opens your eyes in a beautiful way. So, a lesson here that I would suggest we might think about applying to our Scripture reading is stories in Scripture, which are meant to be taken figuratively, not literally, can still point us to the truth in powerful ways. Here's a little tidbit. You can try this out, maybe even tomorrow, if you bump into one of your friends. If someone asks you, do you take the Bible literally, you might tell them, I take it seriously. Are you with me? Right? We should take it as the authors intended it. So when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, I'm not looking for leaves. That's meant to be taken figuratively, but seriously. Amen? A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, put it this way. Between the scribe who has read and the prophet who has seen, there is a difference as wide as the sea. We are today overrun with orthodox scribes. But the prophets, where are they? The hard voice of the scribes sounds over evangelicalism. But the church waits for the tender voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and has gazed with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. And yet, and this is the important part, and yet, thus to penetrate, to push in sensitive living experience, 
into the holy presence is a privilege open to every child of God. Amen? Every child of God. Now, we're going to talk tonight about two parables that come from Luke chapter 15. They're commonly uh, discussed as parables of the lost. And I want to take a moment and suggest to you that we could actually consider the Bible as the book of the lost. Okay, It's an alternative way of thinking about this, but let me paint a little picture for you. We fit into the book of the lost. Now, don't leave, because we're going to talk in a minute about being found. That's the good news. Okay, The Bible is the book of the lost. The first question posed in Scripture comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they, meaning Adam and Eve, who also are hard on the heels of their own foibles, they said yes to the serpent and no to God, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Figurative language. Let me clue you in. God knew you were there. And one, one aspect of fallen humanity is that, that sense of self-delusion that we can hide from him. I've told a story from this podium on a number of occasions about the power of a poem to move me into the kingdom. The poem's called The Hound of Heaven. And in the opening chapter, that author talks about hiding from God in the midst of tears and under running laughter. These beautiful images about ways in which we can pretend, I'm not here. Nothing to see here, God. Move along. Right? We're kidding ourselves. And God, in this wonderful rhetorical way, says, where are you? And that cry from the living God to humanity has echoed down the ages. Where are you, Matt? Where are you, Brent? Where are you? We flash forward to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Just a few short verses away from the close of Scripture. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price or freely. Where are you? Come. Those are the bookends in Scripture. To the one who came to seek and save the lost, we are all lost. Now, what does it mean to be lost? We could wax poetic on that, no doubt, for quite some period of time. Let me try to set a little bit of cultural context for you. We we can Christianize that term quite easily. For those of us that have been in the kingdom for a while, it has a very specific meaning. Okay? What it means to be lost. Let me give you a sense of what it meant to the hearers uh, in in first century Palestine. Now, there's a Hebrew word called derek. It looks like the English proper name derek. Derek. And this is translated as the way. Okay? That's also part of Christian idiom, if you will. Or the path, or the road. Okay? That term, of course, long predates the New Testament. It was part of the cultural lexicon in the ancient Near East. Because travels were not on superhighways. 
right? So going from point A to point B in Galilee, Judea, Samaria, involved a very particular way to go. And if you wandered off the way, you were literally risking your life. Exposure, dehydration, thieves, wild animals. So staying on the way in a literal sense is a matter of life and death, as we all know. In a spiritual sense, it has a similar connotation. So there are three related Hebrew terms about how well we are about staying on the way. The Hebrew word sadiq, which literally means to stay on the path or on the way, is translated in the Bibles we read with a word that Pastor Brent just shared with us a few minutes ago. Righteous. So the righteous ones are the ones who stay on the path, who don't get lost. Okay? The Hebrew word rasha means to stray or to be lost from the path, literally and spiritually. It's translated as wicked or unrighteous. And last but not least, what we all hope for when we lose our direction, we can't see the North Star, is the Hebrew word shuv. Shuv means to return to the path. In Christian theology, we use the word repent. All of these, to a listener of the Sermon on the Mount, to a listener of Jesus' parables, would have had the cultural connotation of, I need to get from point A to point B, and I might not make it. I have to pay attention to where I'm going. We give them the new and richer gloss, in many ways, of this way in terms of the spiritual walk through life. So when Jesus said to his hearers, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way would have meant something very serious to them and would have been part of the common cultural lexicon at the time. Now from Luke chapter 15, we get several parables, one of which we're going to save for a few weeks later. We get the parable of the lost sheep. It appears in Luke 15, verses 4 through 7. A similar version of this is found in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, the lost sheep are depicted as children. So the parable presents the sheep as an example of children. Here the sheep are depicted as sinners. In Luke 15, verses 8 through 10, we get a parable of a lost coin. And I think we may have these available, but I'm going to read to you the first one, the parable of the lost sheep. Luke 15. Now, Luke 15 ends hard on the heels of a common call and challenge from Jesus. The last verse in Luke 14 is, Let he who has ears hear. We transition right into Luke 15.1. And perhaps not surprisingly, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. <laughs> okay? which they were not particularly gifted at. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. Like Nathan, he tosses a story right alongside the Pharisees in hopes that it might open their eyes. What man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, this is an oblique slap in the face to the Pharisees. It's a wake-up call. Okay? One sinner who is not self-righteous, who is wandered off the path and, and wants to repent, shoes, and find their way back on, is worth more than 99 Pharisees who think they have it all figured out. It's a bracing challenge. And by the way, the Pharisees would have understood. That's part of why their anger continued to grow throughout the Gospel accounts. Because he continues to tweak them. Now, does he tweak them because he wants to tweak them and nothing else? No. He wants the scales to fall from their eyes so that they can see. Now, he immediately, in the very next verse, transitions into a second parable of the lost. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently? Until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this, this is a repetitive example. Two different illustrations talk about the joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. Now, it's common when we talk about the woman and her coin to, to pitch it in purely economic terms. If we imagine she had only ten coins, then that one meant a whole lot. If somehow 10% of your net worth was about to disappear, you probably would look pretty hard to find that too. And there's nothing wrong with that interpretation. But again, if we set it in, a, in the cultural context of what the hearers probably would have appreciated more, it was common in ancient Near East culture at this time to, to have as part of a wedding ceremony either a ceremonial headdress, almost like a headband, or a necklace that contained coins. It plays the same function that wedding rings play nowadays. That in and of itself raises the ante a little bit. If, if the love of your life has given you something that symbolizes an eternal covenant bond, and that disappears, I can assure you, you're going to look pretty hard to find it. So perhaps it wasn't just the economics. There was also a cultural tradition at that time that if a woman showed up with that headdress or that necklace and a coin was missing, the implication was the coin had been removed because of a sin that she had committed. Okay? So had it actually been lost and she showed up in public with it, there would have been no way to explain, no, 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 really, it's in my couch somewhere. I left it in my Toyota. It's somewhere around here. So she wanted, because she knew she had not committed that sin, to find that coin, to complete that ceremonial headdress, and to bear witness to her fidelity to her husband. The motivation to drive that coin, I would submit to you, was more than merely economics. Now, 
These parables, again, are, are and have traditionally been discussed as, as parables of the lost. I want to take a few minutes and suggest to you that we ought to, ought to spin that in a slightly different way. How about we call them parables of joy instead? Let me remind you, parable of the lost sheep ends this way. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The parable of the lost coin ends thus. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This echoes one of the more magnificent scenes in the Old Testament from Job chapter 38. You'll recall the book of Job, which, by the way, I'm going to submit to you is also figurative. Okay? It's a story meant to illustrate eternal truths about the human condition. Okay? Job is depicted, depicted as this righteous man in Job chapter 1. Big family, lots of property, very wealthy. Satan is given permission by God to make life miserable for Job. In chapter 2, do you remember who shows up? Job's encouragers. Remember his friends who spend the next 37 chapters telling him why he's such a sinner and that he's earned this, his, his encouraging friends, right? We should all have to be so lucky as to have friends like that. So from chapter 2 to chapter 37, we get this back and forth between Job and his pal. Chapter 38. God bursts into the scene. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's when the, we, the knees start shaking. <laughs> Job says, Here we go. Okay. Now prepare yourself like a man. The King James says, Gird up your loins. Gird up your loins. Get ready. I will question you. You shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? And this is the important part. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, in just the same way they shout when one sinner enters the kingdom. It's an awesome picture. And what I'd like to do for just a few minutes is ask you, trust me, I want you to close your eyes. Let's exercise our imagination for just a few minutes. Okay? I promise I'm not coming down and rifling my way through your handbags or anything like that while your eyes are closed. Close your eyes, let your imagination flow, and let me for just a few minutes bathe you in scriptural references to joy. The word joy and variations, rejoice, joyful, appear in scripture some four to five hundred times depending on the English language translation. They are used most frequently by David in the book of Psalms and by the prophet Isaiah, both of whom refer to joy almost three dozen times. 
So bear with me and let me wash you in the blood if I can borrow a line from Wesleyan. From 1 Chronicles 16.33. Beautiful figurative language. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. From Ezra 6.16. And the people of Israel the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. The rebuilding of the temple. From Nehemiah 8.10 Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. From Psalm 5, verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. From Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path or the way or the direct in the Hebrew, of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. From Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Psalm 63, verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. From Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10, And the ransomed, that's us, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. And one from the New Testament, from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Can you keep the eyes closed and join me in prayer as we wrap up this evening? Whisper this as I walk through this. You will recognize this instantly. And I want you to just whisper this in the presence of the Lord. Press in, as Tozer said. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, 
but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Is grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm blind, but now I see. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you for your pursuit of feeble, fickle, selfish, blind, lost sinners such as myself. Thank you for rescuing us from ourselves. We love you, we praise you, and all the glory. In Christ's strong name we pray. Amen. I'll see you at the back table. Coffee and donuts. Thanks for your attention. God bless you all.